The promised land, the covenant land, is at last inhabited. Joshua chapter 1 and verses 1 to 9. I feel terrible missing out so much of Deuteronomy and Numbers and Leviticus and so on. But that's life. We've got to really start motoring now. And we're going to be making sort of, you know, lunar leaps across through the Bible because actually we need to try and get a, a big sense of things. But I think uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy are two of my favorite books of the Bible, and they are well worth uh, really getting into and, and, and digging around in. But uh, we have to press on. So Joshua, chapter 1. And what is interesting is that God says that he's going to go ahead and give them what they have been promised, this land. And you remember Joshua and Caleb were the only two spies who trusted God to keep his promises. So they're the only two of their generation who actually get to enter the land. The point is that he tells them, verse 6, to be strong and courageous because of God's promise. Because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Do you see? It's still on the basis of what God has said. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey the Lord. Do not turn to the right or the left. Do not let the book of the Lord depart from your mouth. Meditate on it. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. Now those two assume the potential for discouragement and terror because there will be scary moments. There will be moments of doubt and discouragement. This is reality. This is normality. He's not saying they won't happen, but he's saying know how to deal with them. Be strong and courageous. Why? Because the Lord Yahweh, your God, will be with you wherever you go. We've got to be careful how we apply those words to us today. It doesn't mean to say that whatever we want to do, it's okay because God will be with us. Now, this is a very clear, specific promise to a person who is leading God's people to take the land that God had promised. And that is why he could be confident. Trusting God to keep his promises. And what we find in the next 12 chapters is that the land is conquered, and God is the one who does it. Take the conquest of Jericho as an example. Very peculiar tactics, if you remember them. These are not standard military procedure in any army. You don't go up to a wall and start shouting at it, let alone playing some music. You don't get the brass band in. You know, put them in front of the cannon fire. That'll do the trick. You know, a few oboes and trumpets here, and, you know. That's not the point. It's not saying this is the way to defeat enemies. This is it's simply saying this is the way that God is going to give you this city. Do you trust me? If you trust him to take, keep his word, then you'll do what he says, even if it means wandering around a town on a sightseeing store shouting. Only God could have pulled it off. Only God can take the credit for it. That's the point. And God is the one who gives the land. Well, he promised it, and then the land gets subdivided amongst the 12 tribes. Interestingly, so you don't get confused, the, the Levites were the tribe of priests descended from Aaron, uh, which Moses and Aaron were part, and the, the temple priests were descended from Aaron. And they were not given territories, they were just given a few cities. But to keep the number up to 12, I assume, Joseph's tribe is divided into two, which is why you have Ephraim and Manasseh, who were Joseph's two sons. Joshua 21, verse 43. So Yahweh gave Israel all the land he'd sworn 
to give their forefathers, and they took possession of it and settled there. Yahweh gave them rest on every side. That's a significant word, isn't it? Rest. God's work is done. He doesn't rest because he's tired. He's rest because he finished. There was rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their forefathers, not one of their enemies who had stood them. You can't thwart God, you see. Yahweh handed all their enemies over to them. Not one of all God's, Yahweh's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Not one. Everyone was fulfilled. You see, trusting God to keep his promises. Yahweh is a faithful God, as his name implies. Now, once the conquest had been achieved, the work had been done, the covenant is renewed. Very significant moment. The people are reminded of where they stand with God, how they got here, who takes the credit, but also how he wants them to live in the light of that. Joshua 24, just as Moses had preached to the people before he died, Joshua does the same thing, following his mentor's example. Verse 14, now fear Yahweh and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve Yahweh. That's interesting, isn't it? They're still lurking away in a few backpacks. Some little idols that they brought with them. Weren't quite sure whether we could leave them behind. But if serving Yahweh seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you'll serve, whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. And as for me and my household, we will serve Yahweh. So this is what we're going to do. It's up to you what you do. But it's a bit of a no-brainer, isn't it? The gods of the Amorites, the gods of the Canaanites. They will be a thorn in the side of the people from now on in, because many of them did not take his advice. But at this stage, at the end of Joshua, everything looks absolutely marvelous. It looks fantastic. God's promises appear to be fulfilled. There's his people living in the right place, and they really do constitute a nation now. Under his rule, they've renewed the covenant. They said, yes, we're going to do this. We're going to serve this day Yahweh who saved us. Not saved by works, but for works. We want to do it because of what he's given us, and it's amazing. We have this land flowing with milk and honey. Hallelujah! However, it immediately becomes apparent that the Garden of Eden is still a long way off. The serpent crusher still has not appeared. It wasn't Moses. It's not actually Joshua either. Moses was someone who had close fellowship with God in an intimacy that was unheard of in the Old Testament since Genesis 2. That he was a sinner. And he died outside the promised land, being allowed just a glimpse Incidentally, there's rather a wonderful moment. This is a bit of a sidetrack, but I think it is rather wonderful. Do you remember when Moses next appears in the New Testament? Transfiguration. Pretty odd moment, but do you remember where they are? They're in the promised land. Jesus, Moses, in the promised land. Just a little sign of God's grace. But we're still hunting for the serpent crusher. Who's it going to be? Well, we have the book of Judges. And I've called this the cycle of anarchy. There are 12 judges. That's rather a nice round number, isn't it, for the Bible? 12 judges over the next few centuries in the land. 
Now, a judge is not simply a legal figure, although he did have legal responsibilities. He was actually more than that. He was a leader, a rescuer raised up by God to lead his people. That sort of language is used of these judges. But the startling thing, especially as the period continues, that actually these people were not admirable people at all. In fact, judges read more like a rogues gallery than the heroes of faith. Take Gideon. You heard sermons about Gideon and his fleece? You know, just uh, put out a fleece and maybe it'll get due in the morning and that'll be God saying, yes, you should marry this person or take that job or buy that Kit Kat. But actually, the whole point of the fleece is a sign of his unbelief. God had said something and Gideon couldn't quite bring himself to believe it. He says, oh, just give me one more thing. You know, just so I know it's really true. You know, make this fleece wet when everything else is dry. And God says, okay, if that's what you need, I'll do it. He does it. Then Gideon says, yeah, yeah, I'm just not quite sure. Just give me, do it the other way around this time. God says, yeah, okay. But God's track record was sufficient, surely, to say you can take God at his word, can't you? Actually, the whole fleece nonsense was a sign of his unbelief, the sign that he didn't believe God's promises. Well, he did in the end, because God was very, very gracious to him. It is not a model for how to behave. And Samson, oh boy, he was an egotistical sex maniac. And that's just two of them. The rest are a pretty rum bunch. But actually, we can see the first, Othniel, as a bit of a test case. And what we find Othniel up to, and this time actually is illustration for what comes later. So Judges chapter 3, verse 7, nice short bit. What happens? Well, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. They forgot Yahweh and their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs, the Canaanite religion. When you find this little phrase, they did evil in the eyes of Yahweh, and you certainly find it in the book of Kings as well, specifically, it has very specific connotations. It's about idolatry and worshipping other gods. And that is so terrible, not because it's just a genuine mistake or anything like that. It's terrible because it's giving credit to the wrong person. God is the one who's done all this for them. Why do they go and worship these other people? Or logs, or pots. The people did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. And God is understandably angry. It's credit where credit is not due. Pendence is not due. You can't depend on these. They're just logs. And God sells them into the hands of this unpronounceable other guy. And the Israelites are subject to him for eight years. But they cried out to Yahweh. And what does he do? He raises up a deliverer, a judge, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother who saved them. God raises up a savior. He has mercy. And the result? Well, Cushan Rishathayim, king of Arahan, falls into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So this judge brings peace, rescues the people, and they have peace for 40 years. And this is the cycle. The people sin, God judges. The people repent, God raises a judge, and the judge brings peace. That cycle happens 12 times. And it's pretty depressing. And actually, what you find is that the peace tends only to last as long as the judge is alive. As soon as the judge dies, it's like people suddenly forget what's gone on and it happens again. But actually, it's not just a simple cycle. It's more like a vortex. It's getting worse and worse each time. And by the time you get to Samson, there isn't peace at the end with the Philistines. It doesn't achieve anything other than just killing off a few Philistines. They're still a subject nation. So each time things are getting a little bit worse. 
So what is the problem? Well, look at those verses on the sheet. 21 verse 25. Problem is sin, and you know it's a pretty good definition of sin, isn't it? Uh, everyone does what they think is right. I mean, that's knowing good and evil, isn't it? That's determining what is good and evil. So I think this is right. I'm going to do it. The writer of Judges certainly thinks that this is the answer. We get it four times in those last few chapters. The last few chapters, if you like, are some incidental stories. The last four chapters in Judges are uh, incidental stories from this whole period, and they're not specific to any particular judge as such. Um, But they are absolutely gruesome. And you have all kinds of sort of stuff of rape and civil war and all kinds of terrible things. I mean, this whole period of uh, the centuries of the judges were awful. It wasn't the sort of rosy-tinted future that uh, Joshua and his generation had been expecting. Because sin always gets in the way. But the question is, what makes you think that a king is really going to be the answer? And basically, this throws up a tension that you have throughout the Jewish Bible. The tension of whether or not having a king is a good thing. What's the difference between having a king and having a judge that God raises up from time to time? That's the sort of question. Why will that be any better? I'm not suggesting one way or the other. I'm just asking the question at this point. So what happens? 1 Samuel chapter 8 And the story of Samuel and kings is all about uh, the monarchy. So we know that a monarchy comes along, but uh, what's the significance of that? Um, Is that a good thing or not? That's the sort of question I want you to have in your mind. The people asked for a king in Samuel 8, 1 Samuel 8, and that is not as positive as it might seem, because in Judges you think, okay, having a king, that's got to be the answer. The people asked for a king, but their motivation is up the spout, verses 5 to 8. Verse 5, now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. Now that is rightly interpreted both by Samuel and God in this chapter as a rejection of their authority. Because for them it's not enough to have God who raises up prophets like Samuel every now and then. It's not enough. They want to be like other nations, but the whole point is they're not like other nations, are they? What other nation can claim a history like theirs? It's unique. It's miraculous. It's nothing short of the intervention of the divine creator. There's no other way you can explain this nation. Why do they want to be like other nations when they're not? It's because they feel insecure. It's because they don't actually trust God to keep his word. Isn't that it? For your own study, just have a look at that passage in Deuteronomy and compare it with Samuel's speech there. Don't look at it now. But it's fascinating because Moses warns the people what will happen if you get a king. And Samuel reminds them of that and says, look, actually, kings are a bit of a mixed blessing, you know. They'll take your sons off to war and they'll make your daughters into perfumers and bakers and everything else. And you really don't want that. And yet the bizarre thing is that a king is still on God's agenda, even if the people's motivation is up the spout. And presumably that's why he says, "Okay, give them a king. And first up is Saul. And things seem pretty promising to begin with. He was attractive. He was strong. He was the people's king. And he's got everything going for him. And he is anointed by Samuel and the Spirit of God. And as such, he was the Messiah. He was the anointed one. Samuel was the Messiah. That's what it means, the anointed king. But he was a flawed Messiah. And at crucial moments, he did not trust God to keep his promises. And so he fell out of favor with God. 
And it just shows you cannot judge a book by its cover or a king by his looks. God's spirit leaves him and another is anointed in his place. A person who is God's choice, not the people's. That is David. He was a very unlikely choice for a Messiah. You wouldn't have picked him if it was up to you. He was the youngest son of Jesse. He was just a shepherd boy. Not even his dad thought he was worth um, introducing to Samuel. He said, oh, yes, uh, yeah, David's he's out in the fields. You don't need to worry about him. Samuel says, no, actually, that's the one I, I want to meet. So if not even his dad sees that he has promise, what hope does he have? But he's the one chosen to shepherd the people. That's why he's able to kill Goliath in a miraculous way. We are not meant to think that his aim was extra good or that he'd been practicing for days with, you know, sort of dummy of Goliath and trying to aim the rocks right at his temple. And he'd been doing it, you know, if you do it 357 times, you're bound to get it on the 358th as well. We're not meant to imagine that at all. The whole reason he's able to do it is because God used him. That's why he didn't wear the armor. That's why he was prepared to just do it with a couple of rocks. And why it was so simple. It's not because David was special, but because God was. You see, God is the hero of the Bible. And please get rid of any nonsense about the different stones in his bag representing different aspects of the Christian life. You know, like faith, hope, charity. You know, did he knock Goliath down with charity? Are there giants in your life? Now, which, which stone are you going to polish today? Your faith. Maybe your faith needs a bit of polishing before you chuck it at the giant. No, it's nonsense. That's not what the writer of Samuel is talking about. He's talking about God's way of getting his man into the position of king to rescue his people. It's not a model for the Christian life. It's God at work bringing about salvation. Only God could have done that. If we identify with anybody in that story, it is the cowering Israelites with their knees knocking, watching to see what's going on. I don't look at the story and think, hmm, okay, I'm David, so what am I going to do today? Well, eventually we find that David is the one God uses to unite the people for the first time since Joshua. And you can see that in 2 Samuel 5. Now, it's not to say David was perfect. As we've said again and again, God uses sinners. And his most infamous moment was when he committed adultery with a beautiful woman and killed her husband. David repented. He returned to God, yes, but his reign actually was never the same again. The effects were devastating. He never had the moral authority to lead again. So yes, in one level, he was forgiven and he, you know, he survived. He was still king. But as a result, what you find is a terrible situation of a weakened king that suffers rebellion, revolt, insurrection, even by one of his own sons. The awful thing is that his children are chips off the old block. He committed adultery and murder we find that his children do exactly the same thing. Within the family, there is incestual rape and fratricide. Yeah, they're following their father's footsteps, all right, at home. And yet God still uses sinners for his purposes. Something quite encouraging in that, isn't there? And then you have Solomon. Do you remember whose mother Solomon was? Bathsheba. It's pretty weird, isn't it? He had plenty of children to choose from. And yet God decides that he's going to make the next king, yes, David's son, but by the woman he fell for. I don't fully understand that, but it's pretty interesting. 
And in some ways, when Solomon comes along, things are looking great. David had said during his reign, you know, look, we've got rest, everything's sorted, it's marvelous. We can't have God living in a tent anymore. Here I am in my nice wood panel palace looking out over the city. You can't have God in a tent. I'm going to build you a house, God. Oh, no, you're not. I'm going to build you one. And the play on words is the same in the original as it is in English. Instead of a building, he's going to have a dynasty. And from his family will come someone who will, yes, build the house for God and reign forever. Don't jump to conclusions. I know you think you know who it is, but don't. One who's going to reign forever. So perhaps David's not the serpent crusher. Well, he can't be because he's part of the problem just as much as the solution, isn't he? He's a sinner. Well, perhaps it's Solomon. And I must say, things are looking pretty hot with Solomon. You know, he has anything he could possibly want. And what does he ask for? Wisdom. Fantastic. What better thing? And God says, that's great. I'm going to give you everything else as well. And he builds a permanent tabernacle, the temple. That's the ultimate sign of stability and rest, isn't it? They're there, they're safe, they're secure, and God is there. And, you know, you have those psalms describing what it's like. You know, I look to, the, look to Mount Zion, the hill of the Lord. You know, wherever you lived in Jerusalem, you could look up and say, yes, God is with us. Fantastic. And then you have what I would regard as the climactic moment of the Old Testament, of the Jewish Bible. You know what that is? 1 Kings 10. Who should come but an African queen? And what a great moment this is. What is the significance, do you think, of an African queen coming to say, wow? Because that's basically what she did. Queen of Sheba. What, what, what's the significance of this, do you think? She's not Jewish. But what does she do? You see, isn't this a beginning of the fulfillment of the promise back to Abraham? Here you have a pagan coming to say, wow, Yahweh is amazing. He's given you all this. This is some God. David and Solomon and Israel in the land, there's a temple and the covenant and the law. And the world will be blessed. An African queen, who otherwise would have nothing to do with God's people, comes and says, wow. And at that point, everything goes wrong. This is the high watermark of God's work so far. And after that, it's like he just rips the whole thing. Solomon leads the nation in worshipping other gods. Can you believe it? I mean, a man who's asked for wisdom from the one true holy creator God now completely loses his mind. What's he on? Well, yes, his pride was one of the problems. But actually, it was his wives as well. And who are we told that he married? Pharaoh's daughter. How ironic is that? The whole point of the story so far was God bringing his people out of Egypt. And here you have his Messiah running back to Egypt to find another wife who brings her gods. The whole point was you left the gods there. The whole point of the Exodus was that Yahweh demonstrated these gods are rubbish. He's demonstrated his authority. He's shown his assert, he's asserted his sovereignty over them. And here you have Solomon leading the people going back to square one. The irony is just excruciating, isn't it? After his reign, the nation is divided into two, never to be united again. Never. The northern tribes, confusingly called Israel, or sometimes called Ephraim, never again under the authority of a descendant of David. They just have coup d'etat after coup d'etat, 
And basically, there's no one dynasty on the throne in Samaria, in the northern kingdom, and there's no, certainly no descendant of David. So in a sense, they completely cut themselves off from that promise God made to David. The southern kingdom, Judah, and I don't worry about too much about the details. I'm going to say more about this after lunch, because when we look at the prophets, it's really important to understand the difference between these two. But the southern kingdom, they remain with David's line, but actually you see both end up in a bit of a pickle. The northern kingdom gets carried off in 722 BC. The Assyrian Empire zooms in and gets that close to conquering the southern kingdom as well. And uh, they're never to be seen again. They are the lost tribes of Israel. That's game over for them. And then 586, you have the second of the two waves of the Babylonian exile. And uh, Judah is overcome and subsumed into a greater empire. And they go into exile. So for all the confidence in the promises of God, the hopes now seem, when you get to the end of the Old Testament, pretty misplaced. It has seemed good for a while, but the high points of Israel's history are short-lived and now a distant memory. Never again would the glories of David and Solomon's reigns and the extent of their territory ever be repeated. So hopes seem dashed. I think the thing to grasp here is to begin to realize that this is not the sort of thing you expect from a promise-making God. Everything we've been saying so far has been building our confidence, and yet now the whole house of cards has come crumbling down, hasn't it? And you begin to scratch your head and think, what on earth is God playing at? Well, perhaps he can't be trusted after all. Perhaps it was just a fluke that we got here. Perhaps it was just sort of great political and military skill that put David in the throne and Solomon on the throne. Perhaps it was just a a fluke. Well, the reality did look grim. By the time we get to the exile, things were very grim indeed, as dark as they could possibly be, and I'll say more about that. And yet people still had their hopes and dreams, and they weren't entirely wishful thinking. Because, you see, they were focused on what the prophets had to say in the midst of this turbulent period I wonder if you can uh, work out why it was possible not to despair. Well, surely the reason is simple. It's because of God himself and his name. Yeah, circumstances might be bad. Things might, you know, the whole world might be falling apart, but God is still, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. He's not going to change, even if empires fall and cities crumble. And the thing is, through thick and thin, one's got to hold on to the fact that when he makes a promise, he keeps it. And that is what gives the glimmer of hope, and it is tiny at points in the midst of the exile. What do we make of the prophets? Well, who were they? It is a curious fact that the written prophets that we have in the the Old Testament were all from around the period of about 760 to 450 BC. Now that is curious because it's a relatively short period in a long extent of history when there were prophets raised up in all kinds of situations, of whom Samuel was one. But Moses was a prophet and all kinds of other people. And we know that there was a, a particular professional class of people called prophets. And yet we have these specific ones. God has spoken to the people through all kinds of ways before, but now in this sort of period from about 760 to 450, we have various other prophets. Now, why is this? Well, I think this period was a particularly turbulent and difficult one. And if you just look at the dates above, you see 760 is when some of the earliest ones start. That is just a few decades before Israel is conquered, the northern kingdom is conquered. 
Um, it's after the split between the nations, and it's uh, before they are conquered. So you've got the division of the nations in 922, and then you have these intervening years when the written prophets like uh, Amos and Isaiah and so on. Now, during this period, uh, there was massive instability, politically, economically, militarily. There was hostility between the two nations after they divided. So that was difficult enough. But then, of course, there are all the surrounding nations who had their eyes on them. Now, if you think about it, of all the places for God to give this nation on earth, you sometimes wonder, why on earth did he give them that bit? It's one of the most strategic strips of land on the planet and therefore one of the most vulnerable. It is the corridor between three continents. Therefore, if you are wanting to build your empire, it makes a lot of sense to be able to own that corridor, doesn't it? Ideally, think, don't you think that it makes you have to trust God? There was massive religious unfaithfulness on an unprecedented scale, and uh, there were massive shifts in populations and national boundaries. So the northern kingdom destroyed by Assyria, the Babylonian exile of Judah, followed by the so-called liberation by Persia in 538, the end of the exile. But the funny thing is, you see, the people were allowed to go home back to Israel, but they were still part of the, Babylon, uh, the Persian Empire. They were never again completely free. And if it wasn't the Persians, it was the Greeks. And if it wasn't the Greeks, it was the Romans. The prophets were desperately needed to bring God's word into this situation. And so that is what they did. But the interesting thing is God actually prepared in advance, as you would expect, for what this was going to be about. Turn back to Deuteronomy. It takes us back to Moses as the archetypal prophet. Deuteronomy 18, verse 14. The nations you will dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, Yahweh your God has not permitted you to do so. Now, why? Don't read your stars. Don't go to the pagan sorcerer to divine or coax a message out of God. I mean, that's what sort of witch doctors or the astrologists or whatever it is that are trying to do. They're trying to coax a message out of this being, this force, this divinity, whatever you call it. Saying, I've got a question. So you go to the oracle or whoever it is and say, come on, you know, I'll give you 10 goats if you tell me the answer. That's how animism and paganism work. You twist the God's arm to make him want to do what you want him to do. So you're manipulating the forces or gods or whatever they are. It's fascinating. It's the same across the world. It's even the same in the West. Because that's how people treat God, isn't it? I mean, we used to live next door to a witch doctor in Kampala. We used to hear all kinds of funny things going on in the night. We were woken up at sort of three in the morning by drumming. And then it would stop suddenly at about 3 o'clock. It would be complete silence for about 10 minutes. And you'd be lying in bed thinking, what on earth is he doing now? And then it would start again. It was quite scary, actually. But the funny thing is, you see, wherever you are in the world, in the West, in Uganda, in Asia, wherever, we all do the same thing. We are all trying to make God do what I want. Isn't that why sometimes people pray? Pray that I get through this exam. And I'll go to church for the rest of my life. We're twisting, we're manipulating God. That's what paganism does in all its forms. But that is different from God. You see, you don't have to coax a message out of these pagan gods. Why? Because Yahweh is different. Because verse 15, Yahweh will raise up for you a prophet like me, in other words, like Moses, from among your brothers. You must listen to him. You don't have to force God to speak. He wants to speak. And he wants you to listen. 
And listen there doesn't mean just, you know, have an open ear. It means do what he says, doesn't it? When I tell my children, listen to me, I want them to do what I tell them to do. Don't cross the road. Listen! Verse 16, when they, well, they asked for at Horeb at Mount Sinai, uh, it was because they were too scared to hear God's voice. They wanted a prophet, an intermediary, so they asked for one, and God said, fine, what they say is good. I'll raise up for them a prophet like you among their brothers. I'll put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command. Yes, Moses is a spokesman. A prophet later will be a spokesperson, but ultimately it is God speaking. It's a dangerous thing to claim. It's an astonishing thing to claim, isn't it? People use the language of hearing a voice from God or I have a word from the Lord for you far too lightly. Very dangerous language. You can make somebody do anything you like. I'm not saying that God doesn't speak. He doesn't, nor, nor am I saying he doesn't speak through me or you or anybody. I'm just simply saying these are serious words. Because you see, to disobey the words of God is to sin. So if I say to you, go to China, the Lord has told me that you must go and be a missionary to China, and you say, no, I don't think I will, or I don't think it's me, or that's not appropriate, or I can't speak Chinese or whatever, to refuse is to sin. You are placing intolerable burdens on people. But if I say, look, I was having a quiet time today, and I really had this hunch about you, I was thinking about you, I was praying about you, you know, you speak uh, Chinese, you, you have a love for that country, uh, you've been there, you've got friends there, maybe you've got family there. It really does make sense. I think maybe the Lord is saying, go to China. You say, yeah, that's, that's really interesting, I'll, I'll think about that. You go to China, ten years later, you look back on it and think, yeah, Mark was really speaking to it. God was really speaking through Mark that day. Hallelujah. That was certainly the case in our experience in ending up in Uganda. No one actually said, go to Uganda. But we knew it was the right place to be, especially in retrospect. Be very wary of taking on the words, thus says the Lord, unto your lips. Very wary. The interesting thing about the prophets is that time and time again, we find that they are much more than simply foretellers of the future. In fact, it is a bit of a misunderstanding to think that they just tell the future. Most of the time, they're actually talking about their own generation or the generation after them, not about ten generations later. They're actually talking about their own period, usually. If you're looking for prophecies of the far distant future or even today, you will find them probably less than 5% of the prophets containing that sort of language. And so you begin to scratch your head and think, well, what's the rest about? And what tends to happen is people start looking for prophecies of the Messiah, so-called, and uh, they find, oh, well, there's nothing about that here because this is talking about, you know, the sin of the people in the northern kingdom. You think, well, that's got nothing to do with it. And they ignore it because they say, I'm just looking for prophecies of Jesus. That's completely to mishandle what they're there for. They're not just there for that. And in fact, one of the best definitions of their role, someone said, is that they are covenant mediators. They're, in other words, people who explain the covenant and teach the covenant so that people can live in the covenant in their generation. That is why so much of what you read in the prophets is not new. Do you find that? If you're reading some of the prophets, you think, yeah, well, I've seen this before. Yeah, we've been here before. Isn't that why so much of the imagery is agricultural? It's not just because they were living in an agricultural age. It's because the covenant in Deuteronomy, the blessings and the curses about living in the land or being thrown out of the land, were agricultural. And what the prophets are doing, if you like, they are expository preachers of the covenant, applying it to their generation. Blessings and curses. 
And you can see that pattern throughout all the prophets. And it's fascinating, therefore, you see, because when the exile comes, it shouldn't come as a surprise at all. Because God has said, look, if you don't follow my covenant, I will throw you out of the land. He'd said that. This is not being arbitrary. It's not God suddenly getting angry like we do when we stub a toe and think, right, I'm kicking them out. No, he'd given them chance after chance after chance to stay. Look at them. Years, centuries. And there's a pattern of judgment and hope. You can see that with Nathan and David. Nathan is an archetypal prophet as well. What does he do? Well, he has the courage to walk into the king's study and say, you are that man. Terrifying thing. But there is still hope because there is a house that God will build descended from David. Could this be the serpent crusher? No. So let's just summarize the two kingdoms just so that we get it clear. The northern kingdom is much bigger, sometimes called Ephraim, sometimes called Israel. So whenever you see the word Israel in the prophets, you've got to immediately ask the question, does this mean Israel, the whole nation, two nations, or is this the northern kingdom? And then you see after the northern kingdom is destroyed, sometimes the southern kingdom then gets called Israel as well. Confused? Good. The capital is Samaria, and some of the key guys prophesying up there are Elijah and Elisha, then the written prophets Amos and Hosea. When you read the prophets, you've got to ask, who are they speaking to? All right, we can know a lot about their original context when we start asking these questions. It's a crucial question. Who are they talking about? And, of course, they will fall to Assyria in 722 and never be seen again. The Assyrians had a policy of intermarriage and so on as a way of breaking down barriers and solidifying the empire, and that's from whom are descended the Samaritans. And because they were not purely Jewish, that is why the southern kingdom, the Judites, looked down on them. And so the enmities that you find in Jesus' time between the Jews and the Samaritans come directly from this. And then you have the southern kingdom, Jerusalem, with the David's line on the throne, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. It falls to Babylon but there are still prophets before, during, and after the exile because God is not done with them yet. I'm going to have to leave most of the rest of this stuff for you to read at some point. But I just want to talk about Amos as he begins to unpack the situation. And you'll see what I mean as he preaches the covenant to this generation. Now, from now on, you are allowed to use the index Someone spent hours trying to work out which page each book begins on. So if you don't know where Amos is, you're allowed to use the index. That's fine. That's what it's there for. But turn to Amos chapter 2. And what we find are some truly terrible things. There is social injustice on a national scale, verses 6 to 8. So you find all this stuff about um, sell the righteous for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor deny justice to the oppressed. And then there's appalling sex immorality. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. There's some brutal brutality about the language, isn't it? Use the same girl. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God they drink wine taken as fines. A willful rejection of their redeemer. I destroyed the Amorite before them. Here's God saying, look, I brought you in. I was the one you can take credit. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots below. I brought you out of Egypt and I led you 40 years in the desert to give you this land. I raised up prophets. Is this not true, people of Israel? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. A willful rejection of God's word. We don't want this. 
the nature of sin. I will do it my way, not Yahweh's way. And the consequences, well, they are judged by God himself. The language of judgment is very strong here. And the thing is, God is the one who will come and judge them. It's prophesying 722, the Assyrians, and yet God is the one saying, no, I'm doing it, and nobody can escape. And what is interesting is that the prophets will say, what happened to the northern kingdom will happen to the south. So let me just read to you from Isaiah. Don't bother turning it up. But in Isaiah 10, Isaiah preaches to the southern kingdom... Here's Isaiah preaching to the southern kingdom with their capital in Judah. And he says this, As my hand sees the kingdoms of the idols, kingdoms whose images excel those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not deal with Jerusalem and her images as I dealt with Samaria and her idols? So this is clearly after 722, isn't it? This is Isaiah preaching to the southern kingdom and said, Look, guys. Look what happened to the people north of the border. Don't think I won't do that to you as well. Come back to me. You see, Isaiah is effectively preaching the same message that Joshua preached when they renewed the covenant. Choose this day whom you will serve. After all that he's done for you, what are you doing? It's a no-brainer. Come back. But they don't. And it's very hard for us to understand how devastating the exile was. And I'm going to sort of finish with this. Because you see, all the great and the good were carried off from Jerusalem to a pagan city thousands of miles away. Ironically, where Abraham had started out on his journey all those years ago. So they really do look like they're back to square one, don't they? But it's not just the shame and the pain of being conquered and now being a slave nation again. It's not just the homesickness of having to live thousands of miles from home. It's not just the fact that they are enslaved and no longer autonomous. It is far worse than that. Ezekiel 10 has the devastating image of God's glory leaving the temple. Do you know what that means? It means it's all over, folks. The whole point is that God will be with his people, hasn't it? From the beginning, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will be with you wherever you go, into the land. That's what he said to Joshua. That's how they conquered the land. He's been with them all this time, with David, Solomon, even the bad kings. But now he's had enough. He's leaving. You remember that famous verse in Romans 8? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, Ezekiel 10 is like the reverse of that. If God is against us, who can be for us? They were in exile. God's people had been split up. They were no longer in God's land, and they had rejected God's law. What kingdom is this? No wonder in Psalms like Psalm 137, you get despair. There they are, sitting by the rivers of Babylon, but they cannot bear to sing the songs of Zion, of the temple, because it's been destroyed. Their captors mock them, say, come on, sing us one of those songs. Don't start singing Boney M., because the tone of that song, you know, it's quite a funky song, but the tone is completely wrong. It is despair. We can't sing these songs. It is too painful. There were some who tried to keep godly. People like Daniel and Esther. But they had to make it up as they went along because, you see, the law was given to people to show them how to live in the land. But they're not in the land. They can't get to the temple. They can't have a day of atonement. They can't do this and the other. What do we do now? And so Daniel sort of comes up with various things. He says, right, this is how I'm going to try and be faithful to God. He draws a line in the sand and says, right, no further. While keeping faithful to Yahweh and saying, I'm not going to bow down to some image of Nebuchadnezzar or whatever it is. 
There are people in the midst of despair trying to be faithful, but it is a pretty gloomy picture. But what is it that keeps them going? Well, you see, the prophets hadn't just preached judgment. They also preached hope. And this is where I'm going to have to leave you to read through some of these passages for yourself. But we see that there's going to be a new covenant. Not because the old one was bad, but because the old one had a limited purpose. And he says, now I'm going to make a new covenant, uh, continuity with the old one, you know, the same God, the same people, the same idea, but this time I'm going to write the law on their hearts. Jeremiah 31. A new redeemed people, they'll enter Zion with singing, said Isaiah. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will crown, overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Well, that's fantastic if you're in exile, isn't it? We're going home, folks. A new temple. Ezekiel's had this image of the glory departing, but now he's given an amazing image of the glory coming down on the temple. God will live with his people again, and this temple's going to be bigger, grander, more glorious, unimaginable. The pieces of the jigsaw you see are gradually being put back together again. Then there'll be a new David. One in David's line, but it will be another David. Do you remember? Because to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And on the government on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, a child, a baby. That's blasphemous. You can't call a baby Everlasting Father, the Mighty God. That's appalling. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with righteous justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. That's impossible. But no, the zeal of Yahweh Almighty will accomplish this. Then this is where it gets really weird, a new sacrifice. And I don't think Isaiah could possibly have known that the same person who is the baby called mighty God, would be the same person as the servant in Isaiah 53 who would die on a cross. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Sin, autonomy, I do it my way. Each of us has turned his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The punishment that brought us peace is upon him. Do you see? One death in place of another, to bring access to God. And then a new creation. The language of Zion, Zion is the name of the hill in Jerusalem where the the temple was built. The language of Zion in Isaiah gets transformed into the language of Eden, a garden city. Not Welling Garden City or somewhere grim like that, or Milton Keynes. No, this is the eternal garden city. So we've traveled a long way, folks. Because in the midst of exile, there's hope for a remnant of the people who will be restored to the land where the temple will be restored and there'll be a new covenant. Not because the old one was bad, but because it had a limited shelf life. Because now it's showing that you need the law on your hearts if sin is to be prevented from getting in the way.